Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. And if you're visiting with us, it's great to have you in worship with us. You are our welcome guest. And also want to welcome all of the friends and families that are here for friends and family that is here for the, the Wolcott Leonard wedding. There's a lot of you here, and so we welcome you here to In Town. We have been going through a beautiful story in the Old Testament, the story of Ruth, uh, the, the, what we're calling the Gospel of Ruth. And this is chapter 3, a, a marriage made in heaven. Let me read this passage, and then we'll pray. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured it into six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her, came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, would you give us eyes and ears to hear what we each need to hear? We are gathered here as a community and in town as a church, as a missional institution needs to hear from you. Would you speak to us as a gathered body? Would you also speak to us as individuals who have different paths and different journeys towards you? Wherever we are, let us believe that it is no accident that we are here this morning, just as you have narrated these events 
in the book of Ruth, you narrate our lives with kindness and mercy. And I pray that we would see it as no accident that you have situated us here this morning to hear from your word. Father, let your promises be beautiful to us. Let them be magnetic. Let them draw us to you. Father, let the story's beauty come out. Let us see how you have wisely crafted this story, how you have wisely led Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, and how we can stand to learn how you will guide our lives with the same love, with the same character, with the same faithfulness. Lord, we pray that you would help us to hear, help us to listen well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jack Twyman was an NBA all-star in the 1950s. He had everything. He had skill, he had personality, he had charisma, he had wealth, and he had acclaim. He also had a friend. His name was Maurice Stokes, and he had grown up with Maurice. They had gone to high school together. Maurice was an African-American that played on the same high school team that Jack played on. Unfortunately, because of a number of circumstances, Maurice didn't get the invites to the big schools that Jack did, and so he went to a lesser-known college, and though he was outstanding, he was overlooked by the scouts. And so uh, Maurice kind of just was left to play semi-pro and just kind of made his way around for a a number of months or years. And then Jack, when he became an all-star, he remembered his friend and influenced his team, the Cincinnati Royals, which would eventually one day become the Sacramento Kings, he convinced them to bring Maurice Stokes over. The first year he played, he was Rookie of the Year in the NBA. He had everything going for him. He now had a new claim on life, but an unfortunate thing happened. In one of the games, he fell and hit his head in a collision with another player, and he hit the ground, hit the hard court, and a neurological Uh, injury happened that he never recovered from. He was in a a sleep-like coma in and out of consciousness for the rest of his life. Now, he had to be encased in ice in order to keep his body temperature from going up too high. None of the doctors really knew what was going on, but they knew how to keep him alive. But he lived for quite a while at the cost of $100,000 a year. And this is in 1960s money. And, of course, his family had no way to pay that. So his friend, who had been his best friend forever since high school, Jack, said, I will take over his payments. And what he actually did was he became Maurice's legal guardian so that he could handle Maurice's affairs. He sacrificed his own resources, his own money, his own time to be with Maurice, even though Maurice couldn't give anything back to him. He was in a coma. He could blink at times and respond But there was nothing that Maurice could do that would make Jack seem like this was a good deal. Look at what I'm getting out of this. No, Jack just was a faithful friend. He was a loyal and devoted friend of of Maurice. And he paid for his health care costs and visited him every day until his death in 1970. Now, we've been reading this story of Ruth about friendship, about courage, about sacrificing for other people. We've traveled for at least a decade, maybe more in the first two chapters, but here in chapter three, the events compress and we chronicle only one day. And what we see is a lot of intrigue and a lot of suspense. What's going to happen? 
Is Boaz going to redeem Ruth, or is this other relative going to redeem her? We see actually a good bit of sexual innuendo in chapter 3. But the larger message that's been going on since chapter 1 is this theme of hesed, that is faithfulness, covenant faithfulness, devotion, loyalty, sacrificial love. And we've seen this throughout the characters that have been depicted in the story, but most importantly, we've seen the hesed, the faithfulness of God that stands beyond, stands behind all of the events that this narrator is chronicling. Now, we're going to look at this one day in three different episodes, the plan, the plan that Naomi and Ruth concoct, the proposal, the proposal that Ruth gives to Boaz, and then finally, the promise the promise of God that stands behind these. So the plan, the proposal, and then the promise. Now, if you remember from chapter 1, what did we see happen in Naomi's life? We saw these unbelievably tragic events befall her. She leaves Bethlehem to go find refuge with her husband and her family in Moab, a place she would never go, but there was a famine in Israel, and so she chose to go with her husband to seek just basic sustenance. And while living there, she loses her husband, she loses her two children, and she's alone. But Ruth chooses to stay with her mother-in-law, to be devoted to her, to be loyal to her, to follow her back to Bethlehem, even though her people are not there. And she says, I'm not going just until you die, I'm going to die myself. I'll live there because I am not only simply following you and serving you, I am converting. I am a follower now of Yahweh. And so she follows Naomi back. And what does Naomi say when she gets back to Bethlehem and she's finally recognized? Her friends come out and, she's, and they say, Naomi. And she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. I'm bitter because I left here full, but I returned empty. Now, this is one of those moments where you expect the other character to say, you know, I'm, I'm standing right here. I can hear you talking about me because Ruth has followed her back. She's standing right there. And Naomi says, I came back empty. How ungracious is that to Naomi? How, I mean, to Ruth, how belittling would that be? She's given up everything to follow Ruth back, uh, follow Naomi back to Jerusalem, back to Bethlehem. And she says, I'm empty. I have nothing. This Moabitess is nothing. But something's happened in the intervening years because Ruth is no longer sulking around Naomi is no longer sulking around and incapacitated by her grief, but she's taking action. And not only does she now treat Ruth as a friend, she's actually actively engaged in seeking her good. In verse 1, she says, I desire to help find a home for you. She realizes she's going to die, and Ruth is now in her land and doesn't have anyone to protect her, doesn't have an income. She's destitute. She's a widow. And Naomi begins to say, I want to solve that for you. I want to provide you with a protector and with a home. But more literally, it's rest that she seeks. Now, the plan that, they, that she concocts is completely foolhardy. And it's fraught with danger for a number of reasons. First of all, she sends Ruth out in the middle of the night. A woman doesn't run around in the middle of the night in the ancient Near East because it's dangerous. And she sends her, sends her to the threshing floor, which is a place that the men got rowdy after bringing in the harvest and where prostitutes trolled around for business. 
It was a place where sex took place. She sends this honorable woman to the threshing floor. And not only does she do that, she says, I want you to propose to Boaz as a woman breaking all sorts of gender roles by proposing marriage to the man. Even in our culture, we generally do it the reverse. We're generally traditionalists, but Naomi here says, you propose to Boaz. Not only does it break gender rules, but it breaks all sorts of social status rules, class rules, because she's a widow, a destitute widow, and Boaz is a rich, wealthy landowner with a lot of people that work for him. And so it's, it's a perilous plan. It's, it's uh, risky. It's presumptuous. And not only all of those things, but she is not an Israelite. She's a Moabite. She is part of this people that have been hated by the Israelites for generations. And so she's proposing marriage as a foreigner to an Israelite. It's terribly presumptuous. And in a story that is supposedly telling the story of God's providence, how he has stood behind each of these events, that statement has been on the lips of all of the characters that God is running the world that God has caused these things to happen. But here we see Naomi being very assertive. She's taking action. She's saying that I need to do something about this situation. They're being very assertive as if they control their own destiny, as if they control the future. In the movie Stranger Than Fiction, Will Ferrell plays Harold Crick, who is an IRS agent, fairly solitary individual, and he's going about life, and then all of a sudden this voice starts speaking, and he doesn't initially know what it is or who it is, and he tries to ignore it, but then eventually he understands that he's a character in this author's story, and this voice is the narrator of his life and of all of the lives around him, and that's basically the theology, the theological picture that Ruth has been drawing for us, is that we are characters in this big story that God is narrating that God is in control, that when his voice speaks, things happen. But then here, Naomi hatches this incredibly assertive, incredibly ambitious plan. And then Ruth carries it out with even greater boldness and basically just force of personality. And we're tempted to think of of, uh, Ben Franklin's old adage that God helps those who helps themselves. So which is it? Is God in control? Is he narrating our lives? Or do our choices have ultimate control over our future? Do our choices really matter? Or is God sovereign over all things? Well, this story and really all of the Bible doesn't frame that in an either-or proposition. It says it's both and. That the Bible speaks both of divine sovereignty on one hand and human responsibility that somehow we don't We're not called to figure out, is it a pendulum? And does this action over here represent more of God's sovereignty or does it represent my taking action? It's not a pendulum or a puzzle to be solved, but it's the fact that both hold on together. If we look back at the plan, these human means, these choices that they're making carry out something that was previously understood to be God's responsibility. Naomi had prayed in chapter 1 that the Lord would grant her rest, that the Lord would grant her a home. And now Naomi's actions provide the answer to her own prayer. So which is it, Naomi? 
Do you pray to God to do it, or do you actually assert yourself and make choices that carry it out? The narrator is telling a story of lives that presuppose both, that they presuppose that Yahweh is in control, that God is absolutely sovereign over all of creation. He didn't just make things and then let it go its way, but he is actually narrating your story and my story. Instead of trying to guess or conjecture where the two things intersect, Naomi just simply acts. She seems to believe that these two things work together. I am trusting God to answer this prayer, but now I am beginning to act so that it can, through my actions, he can answer my prayer. You see, God acts in his people's acts. God acts in his creature's acts. And our choices, our actions execute his plans. Now, us Presbyterian types have tended to emphasize the former. We've tended to talk about divine sovereignty, almost to the exclusion of the human responsibility, that choices do matter, that faithful choices can, can begin to institute God's beautiful plan. We need to remember that both are true, that God says, choose this day whom you will serve that he lays out faithful courses of action for us to follow and said, I will work through that to bring blessing to you. I will work through that to provide you rest, to provide you a home in this case. It's not either or, but it's both and. God is sovereign and we are responsible to make choices in light of his promises and in light of what he has said is the best course of action for human existence and human flourishing. Now that's the plan. It brings in both sovereignty and responsibility. It's assertive, trusting God. It says, I will make a choice. I will do something about the situation. That's the plan. And what does this involve? It involves a proposal. It involves a very risky proposal. And in fact, if you understand the underlying Hebrew here, things are about to get pretty steamy. This is a a fairly sexualized uh, passage here. Now, Christians have tended to carry around a a bit of a a dowdy or or prudish outlook on life. At least that's the the reputation that we've been given. But here, the story is the Bible. God is not, uh, he, he is being very provocative, maybe even erotic. Now, let me tell you what I mean here. Remember the setting. It's the threshing floor. No honorable woman would go to the threshing floor at night because her reputation would be ruined if she was seen going or coming. That was where things happened. That was where men partied after the harvest. Now, not only that, but it says that she is to go uncover Boaz's feet. Uncover is a term frequently used throughout Scripture to talk about uncovering one's nakedness, becoming naked before another person. And then she uncovers his feet. And I'm not sure why, but in the Hebrew world, feet is often a euphemism for the male parts. Now, it also says that she's to go lie with Boaz. And if you've read the Old Testament at all, lie is often a polite uh, substitute for intercourse. So you have all of this sexual innuendo around this. What's going on? Why does the narrator choose to tell the story that way? Are they just saying that, well, what happened is that they consummated the relationship? 
This is what happens when two people get married, and they went ahead and gave in to temptation. I don't think so, because there's a couple of things that would suggest just the opposite. One is that after the proposal, Boaz says, you're a woman of noble character, that you have chosen to do what's right throughout your life. This is a trend in your life, that you are faithful, that you are a devoted follower of Yahweh. She is a woman of noble character after she makes this proposal. If it was sexual innuendo or if it was trying to solicit him in any way, in a sexual way, would he then say, you're a woman of noble character? But more importantly, the proposal that she gives and the condition that Boaz responds to tells us that they did not consummate the relationship there. He says there's another kinsman closer in relationship, and he has right of refusal. Now, in the ancient world and in these laws that we have in the Old Testament, it made, uh, it made occasion for powerful men, for landed men, for wealthy men to take in a widow, and it involved marrying them. And so what would happen, it didn't need a ceremony. All they needed to do was to consummate the relationship, and they became husband and wife. So if that had happened, then why does Boaz then say, go check with this other person to see if they want to marry you? So it's easy, though, for me to say, well, she's a woman of noble character, and we want to maintain Ruth's purity. We want to maintain the purity of this story. But we've answered that it's most likely, in fact, it's almost impossible that the narrator would suggest that there is any type of sexual encounter here. Then why the language? Why the innuendo? Why all of these metaphors? Is it just to hold the audience's attention, just throw in a little bit of of, uh, steaminess so that we'll keep reading to chapter 4? It's not. But it is because the narrator is is a phenomenal storyteller. Because he or she is taking this story from Israel's past and totally turning it on its head. If you remember Lot... Lot is Abraham's brother, and after the events of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot is left a widower, and he has no male heirs. And so what his two daughters decide to do is they concoct this incredibly risky plan to sleep with their father in order to be impregnated so that they can have, their family can have a male heir. Because in Israel, in all of the ancient Near East, it can't be overstated how important having a male heir and having land was. And Lot's line was about to be extinguished. And so his daughters take this very risky and very presumptuous plan to try to keep the line going, to try and have a male heir for their family. Both get pregnant, and one son is named, guess what? Moab. And Moab becomes a line that splits out from Israel and becomes the Israel's enemies. And it's, guess whose line? Ruth's line. Ruth the Moabite is a daughter in this line of an incestuous relationship that is brought on by a plan, by a proposal, by two women that assert themselves into God's story. Both stories solve the same basic problem. Both stories have a dangerous plan. Both stories have wine and, you know, drunkenness perhaps on, at least with Lot, perhaps with Boaz is part. 
But one story is based on deception. One story is based on sin and incest. Ruth's story is based on hesed. Ruth's story is based upon faithfulness to God's covenant, faithfulness to her friends. And through this, Moab, this splinter group, the enemy of Israel, is now brought back into Israel. And out of that line comes the royal line. It comes From that line comes King David. From that line comes Jesus. But wait, there's more. Because I haven't told you yet why all of the sexual innuendo. Ruth is about to break the rules a little bit, or at least bend them. Because she told Naomi, I will do whatever you say. And she goes and tells Boaz exactly what Naomi had told her to do. But then she goes a step further. And this gets a little bit complicated. She says, I'm going to obey you, Naomi, but I'm going to proposition Boaz in a little bit different way. Because what Naomi wants, she wants to secure a husband for Ruth. And that's why she says, well, get dressed up, put your perfume on, be beautiful, be attractive, be perhaps seductive, because what, Ruth, what Naomi knows is that if Ruth can go and consummate this marriage, consummate it sexually, then they will be married, and she will have protection. She will have a husband, and perhaps even children. Those are the things that were very important in the ancient world for women to have. And so Naomi is seeking Ruth's good, but Ruth turns the tables. Ruth goes in a different direction because what Ruth asks for to Boaz is the kinsman redeemer, the guardian redeemer. And what that is is different than just a wedding. What Ruth is asking for is not simply that Boaz will marry her. What Ruth is asking Boaz to do is to buy all of Naomi's property to, to, to create an heir for Naomi. You see, Elimelech had died, Naomi's husband, and so her line is about to be extinguished because she doesn't have any male heirs, and so all of her property is just going to go back into the general fund, so to speak. It's going to go back to Israel, as a, and so her line will be extinguished forever. And what Ruth does is say, I need you to be the guardian redeemer of my family. And then when Ruth and Boaz have a child, it will be a male heir. It, that will be the heir of Naomi, of, of Naomi and Elimelech's property. The line will go forward. Now, why is this important? Why are all these ancient laws coming to play in this story? Well, what we see is that Ruth is actually subordinating her own interest to those of Naomi. She is sacrificing the immediate promise of a husband to the unknown. Because when Boaz goes and talks to this other person, Ruth doesn't know what they're going to say. She is saying, I am open to God's plans. And it may be Boaz, it may be this other person, but I'm willing to take this risk so that Naomi can have what she wants. You see, Ruth is not seeking her own happiness here, but she's saying, Naomi's happiness supersedes mine. I'm going to sacrifice my own choices so that Naomi can be happy, so that Naomi can have an heir. This, this person, this mother-in-law who said she was empty even though Ruth is at her side, Ruth says her happiness is more important. Her landedness, her family line is more important than my immediate happiness. This is hesed. This is loyal devotion. 
This is sacrificial love. And Boaz notices this, notices that it's not an isolated trend. You are a woman of noble character, in fact, more noble than you were when you followed Naomi home initially. You see, he puts it together. He understands that what Ruth is asking for is not her own personal gratification, but she's asking for Boaz to take care of Naomi and to sacrifice his property for her. You see, in order to buy the property, he has to spend money. He has to take what would go to his heirs and give it to Elimelech and Naomi's heirs. And Boaz says, Ruth, you are a woman of noble character. You are a woman of hesed. You are a woman who is sacrificing your own interest for the interest of another. Instead of chasing after, and he says also, you did not offer yourself to the young men, whether rich or poor. Ruth could have probably found an eligible bachelor before, but, but she doesn't. And Boaz notices this, that instead of chasing after the most eligible bachelor, the most attractive man, the one who will make her dreams come true, she subordinates her happiness to someone else. And this is the foundation of marriage. This is the truest foundation of marriage, that you get married in order to bring happiness to bring delight to your spouse rather than marry the person who can best give that to you. Now, hopefully those two things go hand in hand, but Ruth is saying, I am getting married in order to bring happiness, to bring delight to another person. Now, why the innuendo? Why all of this colorful language? The narrator is interjecting this sexual tension to upplay, to say that this was a difficult decision. Because here they are in the darkness, in the place where people have sex. It's only natural that a man and woman, one who's dressed up, who smells well, in an intimate situation, for them to go ahead and to explore their passions, to gratify themselves. But instead, both of them choose what is faithful. Both of them choose what is right and what is good. Boaz chooses to give up his rights over this woman to this other person, even though it's basically just a legal technicality. He says, let me go first check with this other kinsman. And Ruth, instead of immediately gratifying her desires and her passions and gaining a husband, she says, I will wait. And that's why the language is here, to say this was a tough thing to do. They could have both had what they wished in that moment, and they wouldn't have been in trouble Boaz, that would have been fine for that to happen, and they would have been happily married ever after, but instead they both choose a more difficult, a different route. They choose sacrificial kindness. And the question we should ask is, is why? Why would they do that? If they could have been more immediately happy, and no one would have thought anything ill of them for doing it, why wait? Why give up? Why wait on those things? We need to see not only the plan and then the nature of the proposal, but we need to see the promise that lies behind these things. Ruth had told Boaz, spread the corner of your garment over your maidservant. Now, this is a well-documented idiom for marriage, that she is specifically proposing marriage to Boaz. She's breaking the rules and proposing to a man and someone above her station. But this is exactly what Boaz himself had prayed for Ruth back in chapter 2. 
that God would give her refuge under his wings. And the underlying Hebrew there is almost exactly the same, that when Boaz is spreading his garment over Ruth, that God is actually spreading his garment of protection, of refuge over Ruth. You see what's happening, what the narrator is doing? Is he, is, he or she is saying that promises have contexts, that God works his promises out through human relationships. Naomi needed Ruth to be convinced that God had not forgotten her, that God had not left her. And so he used Ruth to tag along with her to make these incredibly self-sacrificial decisions so that Naomi could still believe that Yahweh cared for her, that Yahweh was said, was faithful to her. And then Ruth needs Boaz to do the very same thing. Boaz had prayed for her, prayed that God would spread his garment over her, protect her, give her refuge. And now Boaz is answering his own prayer by saying, yes, we will make that happen. Promises have context. He will become not only a husband, but a protector. And he shares his legal standing, his resources, and even his name with her. These are heroic people doing heroic things. But they're not the main hero of the story. Because what has been implied throughout this story is that God himself lives by said, that God himself is devoted to his people, that is a sacrificial friend of those who follow him. God is spreading his garment over Ruth and that he has lived by said. What is being implied is that all of these characters, though heroic, they need a hero. They need Yahweh. They need a redeemer because God's action is always previous to theirs. God's faithfulness is prior to their faithfulness. They are living a life of, of faithfulness because God has been faithful to them. What motivates these characters to act, to act in these extraordinarily self-sacrificial ways is not just the law. It is not simply that the rules state this because all of them are going far beyond what is required by the law, by the rules of the Leveret marriage and of the guardian-redeemer marriage. They're going way beyond that. So it's not just that they could be good people, be upstanding people, and follow the, follow the rules. It's not so that they can wrestle God's approval from his hands, not to curry favor with him and secure his love, because what they know is that they've received his favor already. His prior action of faithfulness and love stands behind their actions of faithfulness and love. They've received his redeeming love, and they extend it to others. And friends, that's the gospel That's the gospel in the Old Testament, that God works his redeeming love into the lives of his people in real context and then expects them to do exactly the same, not to earn his favor, but because he's given it already. That's the gospel, and that's why we're entitling this series the gospel of Ruth, because though it's hidden, you have to pick it out through the narrative. You have to look at what the narrator is saying between the lines. It's there. And it's ever-present through this story. The second reading that we did this morning, the New Testament reading, is almost a, a commentary on Ruth. What did Paul say in Philippians? That Jesus 
being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And then, therefore, that's what Jesus has done. Therefore, friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He is saying exactly what the whole book of Ruth is saying, is that God has been faithful to you, therefore go and be faithful. It's not enough to say that I am set free by grace, I am saved by grace, and therefore I don't have to do anything. It is that we then live out, has said, faithfulness, devotion to God, not so that we can curry favor with others or with God or even our own conscience, but it's because God has been faithful and thus you live with faithfulness. That's the story of Ruth. And that's, we see the redeeming love behind every word in this book. Let's pray as we conclude. Father, we thank you that you have been faithful to your people. Lord, if we are here and we have forgotten that, would you remind us? Would you remind us through real people, real situations, that we can sense and feel and believe again that you are near to the brokenhearted, that you are near to your people. Others of us are here looking and asking, are you real? Are you there? Father, would you show up in our lives in the way that you reveal yourself, in the way that you claim to be? Would you be that to those of us who are asking questions and searching? Father, for all of us, let us be brought more close to you and brought into unity with one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.